Welcome to the dark forest Jackie and her pals will never bore us Shameless confessions about our obsessions Will make us laugh and smile So let's explore the dark forest And dark down for a while Hi, it's Jackie Cation and you are listening to The Dork Forest. The website's JackieCation.com, DorkForest.com thedorkforest.com if you like a determiner. Let's do the credits. Patrick Brady's going to fix this audio and video. Vilmos works on JackieCation.com. And Mike Rickberg uh, sang the song with his wife, Sarah. He composed it, and he will sing his version of the Mexican hat dance at the end of this show. Thank you so much for listening to The Dorks Forest. Here's a scoop. I'm doing stand-up online. A lot of Zoom shows will eventually go back on the road. Sign up for my email list. It's easy to get off. It's harder to get on than it is to get off. And no harm, no foul, if ever bored. JackieCasia.com. Sign up for the email list. You'll find out about my weekly Zoom shows and stand-up on the road eventually. You may donate to the show if you would like. I would like. Sure, I would. There's PayPal, Jackie at JackieCation.com, and there is a PayPal button on both DorkForest.com and JackieCation.com, and there's Venmo, if you like Venmo, Jackie-Cation, oddly enough. If you have listened to all of the shows, go to DorkForest.Bandcamp.com, I think. The Dork Forest has a Bandcamp page. You can listen to a, but a lot of ones that are free from pre 2000 nine when I started pre-recording and uh, then there's a live episodes that cost me a couple of bucks. So I charge you a couple of bucks. There's also some stand up. There's a story uh, album. That's very exciting there. And um, other than that, I have a lot of merch in my garage. Feel free to order if you know anybody who doesn't have any CDs or the DVD. And uh, you can follow me everywhere at Jackie Cation. Let's get into the show. Hey, Jackie Cation here. I'm back in my living room, but I'm not. I'm in my garage. Why do I keep saying it? Because I was for uh, half a decade in my living room, and now I have a tiny room in my garage doing the dork forest. And back, you haven't been on since it was real life, you and Rosie down uh, L.A., and now we're Bob Calhoun. You're on the show via the Zoom. I I am. It's, uh, you know, you came to my house in Daly City back when I lived like in a foggier part of the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm now south of Oakland and San Leandro. But before I was south of Daly City or south of San Francisco in Daly City, I'm always in the suburb that's adjacent to the city that people have heard of. I'm never fair enough. Right. right. Yes. So but you're you're still like Daly City feels um, and I only know the exits because my friend lives sort of right off of. I think it's the 101. Is it does the 101 go through San Francisco? Uh it turns into yeah, it does. It does. Okay. It it turns into like basically it's like surface streets until you get back to the Golden Gate Bridge for well, a do while. Do you, you know the Monterey exit? Yeah. Yeah, she, my friend lives on that and right at that exit there's a big giant sign that says Daily City this way. And that's yes. where I always thought that you lived really close to her. I do. I, yeah. I I could probably have walked there if I was that industrious, <laughs> and, and if we knew each other. But right, we, right. You know, and if you had any yeah. idea who Mary Skinner was, and uh, yeah, from college. So, but Bob Calhoun, you were on before, talked about wrestling, and that was your dorkdom ten odd years ago, and uh, now you have a new book out, and we're gonna actually. It's, you know, not everybody uh, can talk about the thing that they also want to plug, which is the murders that made us. And uh, it is a, it's a, a murder thing. And, um, but it's a San Francisco murder thing. And at Bob Calhoun, by the way, it's at Bob, B-O-B underscore Calhoun, C-A-L-H-O-U-N on the Twitter. And mur- the murders that made us is available everywhere, like uh, obviously Amazon and Barnes and Noble, but also your local uh, bookstore. You could order it through them. They would like that. And the local bookstores, especially after the pandemic, like you could order you could order it from anywhere and they will get you a book. Yeah. You know, the, they will find a way, you know, if you are living in, you know, Moorhead, Minnesota, and right. there's a local bookstore you like there, Support they will. Them they will send it to you. They will Mm -hmm. get it to you. Mm -hmm. Even if they don't carry the book really, because maybe people in Moorhead aren't as interested in San Francisco as I am, but But everybody's interested in murder. 
It's 170 years of murder. It's the story. <laughs> it's the story of my home, the mm-hmm. San Francisco Bay Area, uh, told through crimes. Okay, which is interesting because Arthur Gauss, uh, who just did the show, uh, wanted to talk about it, and he wanted. He was so excited about like the the World Fair and stuff like that. So, oh, um, the the um, yeah. There's been a couple of different World Expositions. That's it. I, world Expo. Yeah, I don't really get into those because, and I believe me, I tried. Sure. And also Playland at the Beach, which it was this fog bound amusement park that's <laughs> in um, Lady from Shanghai, the Orson Welles movie. It's where the final chase takes place, uh, the famous funhouse mirror scene. Wow. I'm sure I've but, seen clips of it because it sounds familiar just by you describing it. Yeah, but there just wasn't like a murder there. I couldn't really get. <laughs> or one that was solved. Or that yeah. they ever found the body. Yeah, yeah. There's plenty of you know. There's plenty of uh, bodies dumped in the places where these fairs and expos and Playland at the Beach took place, but not during the events. You know, it's like Golden Gate Park. Twenty years after it opened, I have a bit in the book about how it was everybody's favorite place to either dump a body that they killed or to kill themselves. Like Golden Gate Park in its first 20 years of existence was Corpse Central in San Francisco. Wow. When did they build Golden Gate Park? It just had, what was it? It's 100, is it 150th or 175th anniversary? Okay. So it's like the 1870 is really when it really starts. Okay. Um. Wow. So <laughs> did they make... So wait, so they did they make the Golden Gate Bridge in the 1870s? And that's when no, they made the Golden Gate Park? The area where the Golden Gate Bridge now is was always called like the Golden Gate. Maybe back to like Sir Francis Drake who found the bay. Right, right. He, not that the Alonian stuff who were there already. Uh, Didn't they know just about some, it? They, they knew just about like, it. I can't see it, you know? Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. They, they knew it, but... When a white person disco- first discovered the bay, oh, just, um, he was like, "Look that at was, that!" Yeah, we'll call yeah. this the Golden Gate, and uh, yeah. So uh, clearly, just probably because of the sun setting on it and make, making it look like a sort of a golden, yeah, a golden hour kind of situation. Yeah, okay. magic hour. It was. Why isn't it magic hour bridge? <laughs> the magic gate, uh, yeah. because the, talk about expectations. Um, gold already and then there was the gold rush in 1849 yes maybe it was called that because of that maybe it wasn't even sir francis drake like uh, there's no i you know what i need to write a new edition of this book and go back further to the export gaspar de portola and them and right you know we so can f- are, are you murder obsessed in general or is it just san francisco murder or what happened how did it how did you Oh, oh, there, there is an origin story is I, I wasn't like covering crime or true crime before, you know, I went through my, after the wrestling phase, there was my conventions phase and I wrote a right. book where I went to a bunch of different well, conventions. That's right. You did a conventions episode too. Yeah. yeah. They might've been conjoined, like shattering conventions. And I went not only to brony cons and things like that, but I went to like, you know, I, an NRA I, convention and like a, like a pre QAnon QAnon convention. I right? went to a, I went to a, um, tea party rally and yeah, I went yeah, to you, a, you went con- to creepy conventions as well as just supposed to be fun, creepy conventions, <laughs> <laughs> the brony con. Okay. There's conventions that aren't really, that have creepiness at the sides, <laughs> but they aren't creepy themselves. And then I there's conventions. I would say all of them do. I even yeah. like even like uh, the housing conventions. Like my dad would take us sometimes to go see like the new aluminum siding and vinyl and steel, and they were there was definitely some sideline creepiness going on there. Yeah, I always oh, yeah. I still want to go. My white whale in in conventions is the world of concrete <laughs> in Vegas. It's a whole convention about concrete, and I could just never find somebody. I, I mean, I would have had to pay the whole freight myself. Nobody ever wanted to send me to World of Concrete for some reason. Like what, they uh, were not. What draws were not, the? Were were they going to have new new trucks, new concrete mixer trucks, or what was the? It was draw? just concrete itself, but they had like you know when you would read the convention page because I did I carried on the conventions thing for a magazine called Meetings Today, which was the trade show industry magazine. Yeah. And they would have this kooky little column at the end of each issue with me going to some different trade show. <laughs> and um 
they they have art displays and they have like jackhammer contests. Like they would have dudes jackhammering apart as much concrete as possible, like a rodeo oh. of jackhammering. Okay, yeah, that does. It, <laughs> if they have events, that's hilarious. It's not just here's a sample of this concrete, here's a sample of that. I mean, events make all conventions more fun. They had uh, competitions, brutal competitions that I that I not only wanted to witness, but if I was doing video, I would have to you know, hope not to kill myself with a jackhammer for five minutes. Right, right. And there, yeah. And that of course makes it uh, much more clickable when, when someone has a jackhammer in their hand. Yeah. That is uh, very much so. But now it's murder. Yes. Um, the whole murder thing started for me when my mom passed away in 2008. Oh, Our, um, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you. But there was a story she used to tell about a murder, about a local murder um, in the southern edge of San Francisco, close to Daly City. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my mom was like, she liked to gossip and she would tell you uh, stories in excruciating detail about <laughs> like f- fights at the laundromat. <laughs> she- oh, my God. I've I feel like I've met her. I think. Oh, you would love her. You know, she was she was literally an Okie from Muskogee, Jackie Calhoun. And she liked (laughs) to sit there with a smoke in one hand and a seven and seven in the other. And it was like, you know, she wouldn't she didn't even want a new washer and dryer. She wanted to keep going to the laundromat so she could see women fighting over the dryers and like pulling (laughs) hair. They were really pulling hair today. And, you know, just Uh, that'll break it up. That'll break it up. Yeah. She just. Kind of sit there looking at at this strife going on in the laundromat. She loved it. And, uh, but you know, with the murder story, it was more serious. It wasn't this kind of farcical romp through her neighborhood that every other story was or her past. It was a little more muted. I mean, she would talk about it. Okay. But when you lose somebody, you kind of start to realize all the things you had wished you had, you know, talked about or recorded them talking about right. the, the bits of history. And so, um, I was thinking about that. I didn't know any names or places. I thought it might've happened in the seventies. Cause you tend to, I, in my mind, the whole story had a kind of Manson vibe to it. Okay. Uh, you know what I mean? Because yeah. it's my imagination and I'm just picturing it during my lifetime. Mm-hmm. I came around fairly late. Uh, my my mom and dad were already approaching middle age when I came into the picture. So they are like Eisenhower Republicans. They are they were 50s or are 50s people. Right. Um, they've been divorced since I was six. But, you know, my dad's still around. Right. Um, so just to give you like, you know, they voted for Nixon and stuff and they, they were not boomers at all. They were that in between boomers and greatest generation people too young for World War Two oh, in that, Korea. That, that, that Korean. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That Korean generation that got forgotten. That's Gen yeah. X. Gen X is also that same in between <laughs> yeah. generation where we're blown off completely. And yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. So um, I'm having dinner with my dad or having lunch with my dad. And I asked him, I'm like, hey, dad, you know, there was this murder maybe when you lived in Redwood, when we lived in Redwood City or maybe a little bit before. And my mom used to talk about it. And she said that before they solved the crime, before they solved that mystery, that everybody in the neighborhood suspected each other of it. So, you, oh. <laughs> yeah. Who, who, what, who got killed? What happened? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So at the, at the, at the lunch, my dad, I asked my dad this question and he just gets silent and he says, August Nori. And then like, he's not the most talkative guy anyway, but it just trails off. Like, is there's just this dead space, this pregnant pause after he says this guy's name, Augie Nori. Okay. And so August Nori is the victim. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He was kind of a local handyman. He had played minor league baseball and had a tryout with the Seals, which was the team that Joe DiMaggio came from. Before the Giants moved to San Francisco, the Seals were the Pacific Coast team. That was a huge deal. Okay. All the DiMaggio brothers came from them. So they had a kind of national prominence and mystique. My dad said Augie didn't have the fastball for it, but his dad was the coach of the team. It was like one of those, the team that Augie Nori did make was his dad's team. And it was like the beer bottler team. It was one of those industrial teams. Okay. Yeah. And anyway, but he, he didn't have a <laughs> fastball to get major league or near major league talent out. So 
He was also an Arthur Murray dance instructor. He was one of these guys with an Errol Flynn pencil mustache, slick back hair, probably a local Lothario. And um, he was up on San Bruno Mountain, which borders San Francisco and Daly City. It's still a pretty, there's some endangered butterflies there, so they haven't developed it. It's a park. It's a pretty empty expanse right there. And there's cell phone towers there now. In Redwood in Redwood city. No, in, it was actually in Daly city, San Francisco, okay. kind of right on the edge. And he, um, where basically right by where your friend lives. Uh, she lives on the marches to that mountain, basically, um, up the incline. And, uh, he was out there dumping lawn clippings because, because he was a local gardener handyman type. That's mm-hmm. what people did. They just went to the park or the wilderness area and dumped their garbage. Sure. And a woman shot him 18 times. What? So she had a revolver, like it was with a revolver, it was a six shooter. So if it was fully loaded when she started, she reloaded it twice. So three payloads from that gun. Wow. That is, uh, he would have been dead. He was uh, pretty, he was pretty dead. Pretty dead. So he, she reloaded twice to kill this guy? Yes. Uh, she what? just kept pumping so What year was bullets. this? Okay, uh, 1959. Okay, so that my, uh, prior to your birth. Yes. Right. My mom was 24. Okay. Um, and the um, the suspect was seen. And it was speeding. a woman. It was a woman, a young woman in her uh, blonde in her early 20s. That was the description. Okay. She almost ran over a bunch of 10-year-old kids playing in the street. She drove down so fast. Right. In his car. In his so, car. In his car, and that car was found later on the side of the road, like a street over there. That's um, I went to all the places when I was working on the story. It was bloody, and and you know there was blood in it, and it's you know they had dogs go through it and everything. So they found the car, and that's why they knew that the person driving it was likely the killer or had okay. something to do with the killing. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. still didn't want to believe that a woman was possible of such a violent act, and. So this they, is so weird because t- this very day, because I saw an NRA ad which had like a mother daughter with their with uh, assault rifles or AK whatever, you know, like with with gun guns, saying I I'm not raising my daughter to be a victim. And I thought, hey, let's not raise anyone to be a murderer and a hate fucker. Why don't we Why don't we raise people to be nicer, both men and women? Uh, so this is so they couldn't believe that it was a woman who had murdered. The guy. So, so that meant, um, see, my family knew the Norries. Um, they lived down the street from uh, the patriarch of the Nori clan. I believe my mom had dated or wanted to date uh, August Nori's brother, Bob, which might be the reason I'm named Bob. The families were close. My dad was close with them. He used to hunt jackrabbits on San Bruno Mountain on at the murder scene with the Nori family, which... Wow. To anyone living in San Francisco now, the idea that within San Francisco city limits, people were hunting uh, woodland creatures. Yeah. Yes. That they were, that that was just something people did. Mm-hmm. The neighborhood they all lived in was Crocker Amazon, which is a kind of uh, south of Mission. The mission is like it, Mission kind of goes into Crocker Amazon eventually. And uh, the name, the, the um, feel I get from my dad of the neighborhood at the time is that it was a mostly Italian neighborhood. And my dad is from Chillicothe, Ohio, via Chicago, people that decided they got sick of the snow. My mom's from Oklahoma. So there's this like contingent of hicks, for lack of a better word. That, you know, that came with the city Italian kids or yeah, or? yeah. My mom loved anchovies and olives and things, and that's because she spent her teen years in basically an Italian neighborhood. Sure. I love a lot of German and Polish food just because I was surrounded by German and Polish uh, immigrants as a child. Oh, and yeah, she, but she would still make it Oklahoman. Mm -hmm. She would, she, you know, a bunch of chopped olives and anchovies with mayo on white bread. (laughs) Nom. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Something I would, would not partake in with her. Yeah. It's uh, that, that's a very specific, um, you're just like, why would you just eat the goat? 
Why are you having the goat bile? Anyway, go ahead. So when I'm talking to my dad, he he reveals that my mother was questioned in the murder. Okay. And I don't remember her saying that. You think I would have. And so it was really the story, my murder, my mother, the murder suspect is the first chapter in the book. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to retrace the steps and hoping to find um, police files because, you know, it would be interesting to read what these 50s homicide dicks thought of my mom. There's somebody wrote and filed a report on this. Right, right. There had to have been a report that must have got buried somewhere or not digitized or something. Yeah, the, I couldn't find the court records. I couldn't find there were two police agencies uh, I'm assigned to this and they cooperated, which was very rare. The San Mateo County sheriffs and the daily city police, um, the murder, the body was found fairly squarely on the daily city side. So San Francisco stayed out of it, mm-hmm. um, which is rare because like the Zodiac killer later on, and I don't really go into the Zodiac investigation, but if you've seen the movie Zodiac or read Graysmith's books, um, I think Michelle McNamara was interested in the Zodiac killer too, right? Yeah. But she, she kind of, she, at least from that HBO documentary about her, she, it was like, she kind of also hated the Zodiac because it took so much <laughs> attention away from golden state killer. That's and right. It was that the she, golden state killer was her, was, was the yeah. one that she was like, I'm going to get this guy. And she was instrumental and did good work. She, she was, she definitely was. Um, yeah, I kind of stay away from that kind of work, you know, like obsessing over cold cases. Because, right. I mean, I have written about, like, the murder of Bob Crane, and I've dealt, you know, gone into the Zodiac verse, and I've always kind of like... Hogan's uh, Heroes Bob Crane? Hogan's Heroes Bob Crane, yeah. Was murdered? He was murdered while he was doing dinner theater in a Scottsdale apartment. He was doing dinner theater <laughs> there. The uh, play was called Beginner's Luck. I don't know why I remember that. And I, when that movie Autofocus came out, the Paul Schrader film, right? um, His son, uh, Scotty Crane, who you might have known from LA kind of comedy and performance circles, he was a guy hanging. He was a guy around there. He looked a lot like his dad. Okay, but he launched a website of his digitized versions of his dad's homemade porn because that was the thing. Bob Crane was bludgeoned with a camera tripod and he was, um, they discovered a treasure trove. If you think of such things as treasures <laughs> of his, you know, he was an early, um, adopter, ad- adopter of VHS technology or, or camcorder technology, Betamax. Okay. And he had recorded himself taking home women from bars and banging them. Wow. So he had hours of him, that feels, that feels super consensual, by the way, Bob. Yeah. It feels like they were totally asked if they wanted to be filmed. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I think they're, well, there was, they wondered that if it was hidden camera stuff, but the police, and these are men police, and, and in the 70s, they saw, you know, they thought that the women were, enough of the women were mugging for the camera. Like, it's she's looking right at it. It's obvious. You know, she's kind of. Right. They, they so didn't, we don't know. But uh, but uh, but it looked okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, weirdly, the guy who wrote the main book on Zodiac, who's played by, uh, who's that actor who plays him in the David Fincher movie? Um, Stanley A name Tucci. I have to look up to, to no, spend. I, have no idea. I, I wish it was Stanley Tucci. <laughs> Jake Gyllenhaal. Okay. Uh, the guy played by Jake Gyllenhaal also wrote the book on Bob Crane because, you know, he's just going to do cold cases now. That's his bread and butter is writing. Right. He gets those published uh, historical cold cases. But so, Scotty Crane put up a whole website of of his dad's porn as a protest vehicle, mostly because Paul Schrader, there's a scene in autofocus where Bob Crane is saying he needed a penile enhancement surgery. And this had upset Scotty. One of the things that upset Scotty about the movie, because his dad, he cast a Persians upon his father's penis and he wanted to rise up. Shall we say, uh, in his defense as someone who had to watch this for work. Yes. uh, (laughs) The penis looked fairly more wide than, than long, but it was definitely not, uh, uh, so, was... Some people are looking for diameter. Other people are looking for depth. Here's where we have gone away from yeah, poor Augie Nori. 
Uh, Or Aginori, um, cold cases. Anyway, I'd written about uh, cold uh, cold cases before, and I I just like, you do obsess over them. And for me, it's like, stop, you know, you're, you know. Too much. You're not. Yeah. You're not going to maybe maybe your article um, will will help will help uh, create interest. In fact, when I have written about cold cases, most of these stories originally aired in some form in the SF Weekly's um, um, web page. And anytime I wrote about a cold case, there would be an email from some victim's family member wanting to talk to me, and I had to go Aww. into very funerary kind of kind of priestly mode you know even if the murder happened in 1972 it's like and even if you met in a starbucks you're like you have to be very you know just sympathetic and just try to yeah the hope was always that i knew something that was going to break the case like why are you writing about these grisly murders from 50 years ago and it was always that but uh, you know, and I, you just you talk to them and, and maybe they become a source for a future update or not. If they don't want to, you don't really push them. You just see what they want. Is that why you wrote the book about uh, murders from 1850? To, to give people so closure. You didn't, from- right. So you're like, uh, yeah, no need to no need to get family members who actually knew a person. <laughs> So if I, I'm looking at launching a true crime podcast because that's what the world needs is more true crime <laughs> podcasts. But I'm going at least for the first round. I'm definitely sticking with Victorian crimes. I mean, there are some crazy Victorian era San Francisco crimes like the woman who had an affair with this reporter and the, the reporter was married. And um, he broke it off with her to go cover, to go ride around with Teddy Roosevelt in Cuba during the Spanish-American War. Wow. Leaving leaving his mistress in San Francisco and his wife in Connecticut, I believe. Okay. And and the woman in San Francisco, um, as revenge, mailed a poison box of chocolates from San Francisco to the wife in Connecticut and killed the wife in Connecticut. Oh, I women stop killing the other woman. <laughs> it doesn't like why she should have sent it to him in Cuba saying, I know you like these chocolates signed your wife. And yeah, then yeah. that guy dies. And maybe but, Teddy Roosevelt, like here's these chocolates, <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, here a, boys. As he stomps over uh, dead bodies going, this is so much more fun than hunting. Did you ever see that Roosevelt, uh, Ken Burns documentary. Yeah, yeah. He sounded like a madman who also <laughs> believed in noblesse oblige. So we're very happy. Thank you very much for this national park system. Okay. Yes, yes. But yeah, and, and that was the thing that started in Golden Gate Park. The woman met the guy um, in Golden Gate Park. They had a hot, heavy affair while the wife's, you know, has to go away with the children. Sure. You know, because his job demands he's in San Francisco with his mistress and his job for the Associated Press. So that was like a Ooh. Golden Gate Park crime. That was another um, golden. Yeah. So what? Yeah. So what? there's you were implied that there was like a lot of sort of drama, like the murders that made the city. Right. Yeah. There, you know, it is a city. The and I'm talking about the Anglo-American San Francisco. I, I don't go back to the Spanish or your too you know, too much back to the Spanish or Mexican cities. Uh, Yerba Buena, it was called before it was called San Francisco. And you don't go uh, into Chinatown or into the immigration of the Asian. Uh, there is a bit of that. There's the Golden Dragon Massacre in the 70s. And I talk about a, a Chinese mobster named that was dubbed by the press Little Pete. I'd have to look up his Chinese name. Right. Um, it is one of the things that like looking at the book now, I really wish I went into the things called the current, the thing called the Kearney riots which was, um, I believe, Dennis Kearney, and he was like a white Irish guy who started these riots over Chinese people being allowed to exist that led to the Chinese Exclusion Act. Ah. And I do wish there was a chapter in this book on this. After a while, uh, arbitrarily often, or, you know, I just needed a break from writing about depressing things. Imagine that. But I, I do, since the book is modular, in a way, it's like it would be easy to stick in a future chapter. If it, go out and buy the book, and in ten years, when I'm sixty something, I will write the revised expanded edition. It, with it's the it's, it's like a board game where there's expansion. There's there'll, there'll be ex, there'll be an expansion game to it, and it'll be the Kearney riots, and then there'll be Yerba Buena. It'll be uh, you could you could add any number of things to it. 
and and just yeah and maybe future murders that haven't happened yet because it does go from 1850 1851 to to uh a murder in 2019 of tom guido who ran the purple onion uh my band count dante played there a few times he was a local character and he um unfortunately was was murdered in the tenderloin in 2019 so i i include that as well and that's kind of the coda on the whole thing okay and what was your um well, let's start something much more cheerful. What was your favorite 19th century San Francisco murder? Uh, my favorite, my favorite, one of my favorite things in the book, and nobody asks me about it. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, since this is the Dork Forest, and oh, we yeah. can go into the minutia a little bit and go for, you know, I'm so glad not to be talking about Jonestown and Dan White, you know. Uh, uh, but my favorite, um, the most, some of the most violent people. In San Francisco, in the Barbary Coast, they weren't the hoodlums. They weren't the Chinatown tongs. They weren't. They weren't even the vigilantes so much. Although this inspired vigilantism, they were newspaper publishers. In what year? Like from the very earliest San Francisco, from 1856 through the 1880s. Okay. Like newspaper publishers in San Francisco. And this was not a national trend. This was not something, this wasn't just newspaper publishers of the time. It was okay. San Francisco. They would shoot it out on market street with each other, like over, cause they were basically printing these gossip sheets, even newspapers that are still around today. Like the Chronicle started the San Francisco Chronicle, the survivor of the great newspaper circulation wars of the 19th and even 20th century was basically started by the DeYoung family as a blackmail operation, a an extortion racket. What? So they would like print, they would, they would, it was kind of light, light gossip and news with some really salacious stuff, but they were not above taking a payoff to keep your name out of the paper. So this is the San Francisco Gazette when it first started. The Chronicle. Oh, the Chronicle, yeah. sorry. Yeah, um, you you know, you it's uh uh, you know, I'm hoping for a still hoping for a story in there, so I'm not sure I should be talking all this, but um, hopefully it'll air after the st- or post after the story runs. Right. But uh, yeah, well, they've read it, they know. But uh, the Cron- yeah, the DeYoung family, they came from St. Louis or from Missouri, mm-hmm. and um, there was Charles, there was Gustavus, and Michael. And uh, the rumor is, and I didn't put this in the book because I could brothers, ne- yes. so they had a lot of experience being violent with each other charles was by far the most violent but they um the rumor was and i couldn't quite ever confirm this to my liking but Mm -hmm. that their paper started after in the 18 early 1860s they started a newsprint after their um there were like basic um there were pro-southern pro-confederacy newspapers and a bunch of anti, you know, a bunch of pro-union people, you know, mm-hmm. hearts in the right place, busted up the printing presses and came in and just busted the places up and put okay. them out of business. So the DeYoungs, the rumor is, took all the machinery that they could salvage and created their own printing press. And that's where they got their printing press was from the aftermath of the expulsion of the pro-Confederacy papers. Oh, okay. And were, did they have an opinion uh, in the civil war? Missouri, you know, was pretty well split. Yeah. I, you know, I don't really know. I mean, okay. they, they definitely weren't, they definitely were part of the news media after that. The news media was definitely pro union after that. Okay. So, so, th- so they- yeah, if they were printing a Confederate rag, they would have just been busted up too. So they just took the stuff from the Confederates and, and, uh, and rebuilt the machinery and, and rebuilt yeah. it into, you know, a decent, a blackmail operation. <laughs> Um, so they would essentially like whoever was famous or rich in San Francisco, they're like, we're going to tell, we're going to print in our paper that you're having an affair or that you're a thief or that you're or, this or that. Or um, they, they, I'll get to this later, but slave labor, they would expose people. Sometimes they expose people for, for decent things. And we, we will get into the, let me get, let me preface it a little bit. Right, we'll right. get into You tell the story as you need to tell the story, Bob Calhoun. Okay. But um, the thing that really put the Chronicle over and made the Chronicle even what it is today is they couldn't afford their own piece of the telegraph wire. 
but Charles would hang out in the telegraph office and he got good enough at Morse code that he could hear it. So when Lincoln was shot, he heard, he heard the other newspapers all had their own wires Mm -hmm. and he could hear the and go, Oh shit. The president's been killed. And he had the Chronicle rush out three editions before the people who paid for the information could get their papers out. <laughs> wow. That, that, is, uh, that is a real skill right there. That is just some serious eavesdropping. And what is journalism but really yeah. professional eavesdropping? Like, I, I really wanted the thing, like, you know, I, I would read a little bit about these stories and I would try to find little bits. And I had this idea that hacking, the word hacking must have come from this, that Charles DeYoung had hacked the line and routed it into his office. Yes. But but it was really just more him hanging out like, hey, guys, I'm just hanging out here at the Telegraph office, <laughs> you know, paying off his pal who worked there or whatever it was to just kind of sit there and listen to the Morse code, uh, the little little noises. Right, right, and because that because they would get the telegraphs and then they would take those telegraphs and deliver them to the papers. Is that it? Yeah. And he would just, he would, before they were delivered anywhere, he would just go and sit and see what was coming off the line. Yeah, and then he would steal it yeah. and, and have the paper out and go, Michael and Gustavus, let's get this paper out. Gustavus disappears ba- after a while. And not like he's, you know, a body floating in the bay or anything. It's just like after a while, he, he must have gone somewhere and done something and, and you know, Didn't he goes away. Didn't want to be in the business anymore. Yeah. yeah. So so I need to actually look at notes. But um, so let's see, what years are we talking about? In the, by the mid-1870s, the Chronicle is going and the Chronicle gets in a feud with Isaac Smith Callock, who is a candidate for mayor. This is 1874. And uh, Isaac Smith Callock is K-A-L-L-O-C-H for people taking score at home. This is in my book. Um, he's, he's a candidate for the working men's party. And he is very, very popular based on his um, platform of naked racism against Chinese people. So oh. he's another one of these movers and shakers in the San Francisco white working class that is leads he's us playing to- playing that. He's playing yeah. that card and that's what, okay. So he's running on that hate. Okay. Yeah. And the de Young's, um, the de Young's are opposed to him. They're backing another candidate. Now I can't answer and I, you know, um, it there's doesn't probably mean that they're great guys. It just means that they were not supporting they, this piece of shit. And they might've been okay with the Chinese people just because it's a source of cheap labor. Don't, Fuck with that, you know. Right, right. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, I I don't really know. I mean, I could read Chronicle editorials of 1873 and 4 and figure it out. Uh, please um, do and get back to me. Okay. I will. I will. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the Working Men's Party is, is very racist. They later on, um, just to jump ahead, uh, they do take the mayorship again in, around the 1906 earthquake and their candidate, uh, Handsome Gene, was uh, indicted, you know, like wow. basically they were very corrupt later. They they stayed around a while. They were this third party that could defeat Republicans and Democrats in San Francisco. And as a pro-union labor person, I want them to be shiny and good, but they so aren't. Um, so, yeah, he's running on a heavily racist platform. The mm-hmm. DeYoungs are opposed to him. And, you know, like Substack now, it's all newsletters. So the Working Men's Party had their newsletter, so it was like a proto-substack. And D- Charles DeYoung and Calix start sh- slinging mud at each other. Okay. And, you know, I I'm, I'm think I'm going to, if I can find it, DeYoung, Bastard Progeny. Yes. Ooh, need reading glasses. Sorry, people listening at home and not watching. <laughs> or watching. You can see that it's happening. The aging process right in front of our eyes, you guys. We're getting to so, see. So, Yeah. So in, in, in August, 1879, the Kron ran a story, quote unquote, severely anima diverting. God, I can't even say that word anima diverting upon the character and moral standing of IS Kallak's dead father. So then Kallak in the working men's newsletter, which has heavy circulation because it's a big party. He calls the de Youngs the bastard progeny born in the slums and nursed in the lap of a prostitute. Wow. Okay. So, so, uh, so this is, this mudslinging is going back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't talk about Charles de Young's mama. 
So he actually goes, he he does a Victorian drive-by. <laughs> he, he shows, um, Calic is making a speech. What year like is the, this? Is this 1906? 1879. 1879. This is 1879. Yeah, Calic make, is making a speech for his party, for mm-hmm. the working men. And and DeYoung rolls up in a horse and carriage, waits for Calic to get out, and he shoots at Calic a few times. Wow. And so the working men are getting out of the meeting. They've just shot the mayoral candidate. He doesn't die. He does not die from this. Okay. And D- D- and they start like rocking the carriage back and forth. Charles somehow escapes because he is a mean bastard. So he's able to get away from these hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. And he turns himself. He begs the cops to, to take him in. And so he saves himself by turning himself in after this. Okay. And um, so in San Francisco tradition, nothing much happens to Charles. It's not like the city has ever really weighted towards one side or the other. It's like you're, you, you attain a certain level of power in the city and you're kind of untouchable. So Charles is, gets off scot-free. Nothing much really happens to him. Mm-hmm. He goes back east for a while to wait for things to calm down. Calic wins the mayor's race in a landslide. He still becomes mayor of San Francisco. Charles returns to the city. And I guess maybe Michael said, I don't really want to run this stuff in the Chronicle or for whatever reason, he's Charles starts printing pamphlets, slamming Calic. Okay. As the, the, you know, because Calic is also a pastor at a church that had a checkered history too. That's mm-hmm. a, like, a, I kind of weave that through here. Um, Grace Smith wrote a book about that to give Grace Smith credit okay. where there's like eventually these heinous murders in this church that the Calics at one time years before were associated with. But anyway, Calic, Cal- they didn't have anything to do with the murders. But anyway, Calic, Cal- you know, Charles D. Young is back. He's in the San Francisco newsroom. He's printing up pamphlets about slamming the Calics. So Isaac Milton Callick, the son of Isaac Smith Callick, okay. shows up at the Chronicle newsroom. Um, let's see what year, Victorian, in 1880, April, April 23rd, 1880, uh, Callick's son storms into the Cron newsroom and he shoots Charles de Young dead like five times. What? Yeah, he kills him in the newsroom. And this isn't the only DeYoung to be shot in the newsroom. There's another, I'm get, I'll get to that and I'll get there quickly. Calic's son, uh, Isaac Milton, nothing much happens to him. It's a farcical trial. Um, a lot of the uh, jurors are, you know, there's juror tampering and all kinds of other stuff and people bearing false witness, but he does not get convicted of murder. Um, he gets away with it just as, you know, Charles right. got, a, you know, everybody gets away with it. It's, yeah. Hey, we, we are it's going the power to power structure. We're just going to, we are going to take sides. Mm. You're all going to get away with it. Sorry. Wow. But yes, no. the power structure. Yeah. Um, that's why when writing this stuff on, you know, for better or worse, when I wrote about Dan White killing Milka Moscone, when you take the long view like other books will say this weird thing happened and it is, and it's terrifying and horrible. But when you take the long view, it's like, wow, that's just a replay of the way shit used to happen in San Francisco. That was like for the first 50, 60 years of the city, that was just people, uh, people on opposing political sides for whatever reason, just like they just came into your work with a gun and shot you. That's what happened. Well, and you know, it's so interesting because, um, one of the most surprising things about the United States of America was the peaceful transition of power, you know, between George Washington and the next. So, oh, yeah. so whenever there isn't a peaceful transition of power, we, we sound surprised, but we shouldn't be because traditionally it has never happened. Right. Traditionally, yeah. it's more rare for it to happen than, it, than, than to happen. So yeah, Michael then takes over the Chronicle. Michael is the guy at the Chronicle. His brother's his one brother's dead. Gustavus disappears. He he goes. He's he like, goes no, to, no. The sun's dangerous. I gotta dash off. He 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 steps through a time portal and ends up on Mars with John Carter or something. <laughs> I don't know. But so so Michael carries on the tradition of kind of shaking down. You know, it's too good a revenue stream. <laughs> shaking down local local rich people. Sure. So he goes after, in 1881, he goes after Klaus Spreckels. And Spreckels is a hard man from Hanover, Germany. 
And um, he is a sugar magnate. He has okay. sugar plantations in Hawaii. Okay. And um, this is this is another another a view of the De Youngs that maybe might salvage their reputation a little bit. Um, he goes after Klaus for using uh, slave labor, um, native uh, Hawaiian Pacific Islander you know slave what? labor. I knew that name Spreckle because I read the um, the Hawaiian book by Sarah Vowell. There, oh yeah, yeah. He comes up in there. So yeah, Charles Cron goes after this with these exposés, mm-hmm. and he accuses them of shareholder swindling, which makes their share price crash mm-hmm. in 1884. So the war between the De Youngs and the Spreckles, the War of Words, goes on for a while. So, so in November 19th. 1884, and I, I'm sorry to be looking at my notes. I hope people aren't disillusioned <laughs> no. that I don't remember uh, 170 years of, <laughs> of dates and names. Of murder history. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, you know, your brain pushes out things. You only can remember what you're working on. Adolf Spreckles, he storms the Kron's newsroom, and he plugs Michael. And uh, wow. he just, he shoots Michael. Several times, um, clerks from the Kron's newsroom, like, leap at him and grab his gun. Uh, um, Charles is carrying a, 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 a package of children's books, like a bundle of children's books, which kind of saves him. Wait, not Charles, one, right? The other one. Uh, not Charles. I mean, Michael. Sorry. Michael, yeah, yeah. Michael no, Charles has, has already been killed by some other disgruntled reader. Charles uh, is, <laughs> Charles is gone. Adolf, the, the sugar, the sugar air comes to shoots, kill Michael. Tries <laughs> to kill Michael and he shoots at Michael several times. Uh, and Michael survives. He survives. There's a, wow. you know, there's another farcical trial. Right. Um, and of, of course, you know, nothing happens to the Spreckles family at right. all. Spreckles the is Times, fine. The New York Times even talks smack about San Francisco and I, I have, yes. Okay. Sorry. I'm going to read this again. Okay. Um, where are we here? A piece of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle was decidedly more snarky. The fact that editors as a rule are not shot, but generally die in their beds like other men is evidence that there has been a marked peculiarity in the editorial methods adopted by the De Young brothers. <laughs> and so Ambrose Bierce, you know, one of the great San Francisco scribes. Okay. He says, you know, after the trial and after Spreckles gets off, he says, hatred of De Young is the first and best test of a gentleman. Oh, Wow. So they you know it's like it's like so Terry everyone's, Mason. everyone's rooting for the Spreckle guy, even though the Spreckle guy's a dirtbag too. But after that, yeah. Just uh sorry for the BuzzFeed news alert. I thought I disabled all alerts, but after that, the Spreckles family gets into the news business. They buy the San Francisco call, and instead of oh. instead of shooting at each other, they try to outdo each other in circulation and all these Newspaper offices are, you know, Hearst gets involved too with the examiner. Okay. And the examiner still exists in some form today. And Hearst bought the Chronicle in, I believe, the early to mid 2000s. Okay. Or early 2000s from the De Young family. The, the air, you know, they had different names by then. Um, the De Youngs married into the Hibernia Bank family, which is kind of weird because that was the bank that Patty Hearst robbed. So in a weird way, Patty was carrying on the newspaper wars in the past without <laughs> knowing it. Um, easily without knowing it. Easily and, without knowing it. It was different, but it, it is a funny detail to me. Yeah, it's yeah. like, oh, wow, you know, these newspaper people shooting at each other, then Patty robs the bank that the DeYoung family is married into. Mm-hmm. Uh, crazy, crazy stuff. But yeah, the DeYoung's, um, there are other newspaper violence, the, there, I don't, I, we're probably running out of time here. I want to talk about other things, but. Well, you have, newspaper, about, you have about 15 minutes left, my friend. It's, newspaper uh, on, oh, thank you. Newspaper on newspaper violence goes back to 1856. It starts the second vigilance movement when this guy, uh, James P. Casey, who was publishing what one was newspaper. was the first vigilance movement? The first, okay, the first vigilance movement. What is the vigilance is an, movement? Yeah, vigilantes. Um, oh. They built the city. The vigilantes built the city, which is why, the you know, I contend that we can tell San Francisco's story through crime. Maybe we could probably do this with Los Angeles or any other city as well, Chicago. But San Francisco, it starts with, you know, mob violence about crime and justice and punishment. 
it's okay. really the fat people that the names of streets, you know, streets are named after them all have a hand in the vigilance movement. So 1851, there is this anger over basically people in San Francisco, the first Americans there, and they called themselves native Americans. And that does not mean, uh, it means like people from the East coast who were from like, oh, the, like the, the Puritan Americans. Yeah. Yeah, they they come here and they are so racist that Australians, they're against Australians. Australians are too wow. foreign for them. Yeah. And there is an Australian gang reportedly called the Sydney Ducks that would burn down buildings and and loot them for silver. And I don't doubt that this went on, but I think that other historical accounts of this kind of take the vigilantes too much at their word because they... Were, were prominent members of society who ended up writing the history. Yeah. And, you know, San Francisco described at the time as a city where it's there's just sludge and people sink into the sludge in the middle of the street like quicksand. And so it's built on all these old packing crates or tobacco crates. That's the sidewalks and buildings are built out of this. Okay. And they're lit with oil lamps. So in my mind that some of these fires probably weren't intentional that were reported as intentional. It's basically a powder keg anyway on right, a good the day. The place was a mess anyway. So it yeah. was, was going to burst into flames or sink into the earth. <laughs> and remember, I'm writing a lot of this during the Trump years. So it's like, you know, I, I think maybe some of these, some of this hue and cry against the Australians who were often in newspaper reports called the English Okay. You know, so you really had to keep track of what they're actually talking about in modern parlance. Mm -hmm. So the vigilance movement rises. There's like some guy that, you know, stole something and they all gather at Portsmouth Square, which is in what's now Chinatown, to hang him. Uh, this is led by somebody named Sam Brannan, who was a high, high up, higher up in the Mormon church. Um, but wow. he, he decided this gold rush thing was pretty good. So he kind of kept the tithe money from Brigham Young ah. and started a big hardware business. He didn't want to get involved in mining himself, but thought I could sell people pickaxes. Yeah. Yeah. That's where the real money was anyway. Right. Yeah. That was the sure bet. You know, every idiot was going to go buy pickaxes and pans and shovels. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And so, so he's leading the call to just start hanging people without due process um, another guy named David Broderick is opposed to this, and he's kind of this New York Irish Catholic Tammany Hall guy, mm -hmm. and his interest in stopping the vigilantes is in no smart, small part that he's afraid he might be a target of them. But, you know, there is a heavy kind of Protestant versus Catholic vibe in all oh, of really? this. Oh, really? Yeah, imagine okay. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, oh, uh, San Francisco had a lot of Irish in it, mm -hmm. and... And uh, the, the kind of Protestant power structure, you know, is vying for them. And, and uh, Broderick was doing things like winning elections through false bottom ballot boxes and that kind of thing. Oh, my God. So he kind of wants to stop this. Like he, wa he wants San Francisco to be the place where everybody gets off. Mm -hmm. He wants to preserve that equilibrium. Oh, right. He loves the lawlessness of it all. Yeah, yeah. You know, you could kind of, you know, sure, we don't want people, you know, punching each other on the streets you could you could throw people in a drunk tank but don't do much else okay oh that's a great dog this is a great dog this dog uh we got uh, we, we got uh the gardener is uh is doing some gardening and he's like can i sit in your lap and i'm like yes you can so the, the dog is sitting in your lap the dog not the is, gardener right the gardener the gardener is just still gardening uh okay. he's still cutting the lawn <laughs> and uh gordy is uh hello gordy do you want to say hi to hi to the people no oh fair enough hey gordy <laughs> but Okay, but the craziest part about this is um, they're about to hang this guy, um, this guy in Portsmouth Square who's accused of robbing something. Yeah, so, you know, they're going to hang him for robbery. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so uh, Brandon is there and a bunch of other people with streets named after them are there. And they're all saying, we've got to do this. And so <laughs> a bunch so, of other guys with streets, you know, just, you know, solid citizens, dirtbags, <laughs> Yeah. So Broderick shows up with his henchmen from his bar. Like he owns a lot of bars and he's got some Irish guys running the bars for him. And they mm -hmm. all did time and sing, sing back home. He's got some pretty tough guys. Yeah. And he's like, you have to stop doing this. This is, he, he poses the vigilantes. 
but they get in a tug of war with the dude on the noose. Oh, and God. so the Broderick people are trying to pull him down and the Brandon people are trying to hang him. And, yeah. and, and so they're having a tug of war with a guy with a noose around his neck. Oh my God. In Portsmouth Square. And they eventually, the Brandon people succeed and they, they, they hang him. Although he had probably died during the tug of war from, during the from strangulation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. So, so that is, the vigilantes, they kind of exist and patrol the streets and they have their secret handshake and everything. <laughs> And they that it kind of peters out after a while because just like anything else, these the the uh, the vigilantes themselves start to get tired of going to the meetings. And, right, right. You know, Everybody ages out of a lot of uh, rabble rousing on the streets. It, yeah, yeah, and they they you know they throw a big parade at themselves, <laughs> and everybody cheers them. We're disbanding, and we'll have a police force. Okay, eighteen fifty six. James P. Casey, I need to look at my notes because I can't remember what these damn newspapers were. It's newspaper on newspaper violence starts the second vigilance movement. Wow. So we've got James P. Casey and he is, he has a paper called the Sunday Times. It's another Substack thing. It's really a newsletter. Okay. But um, he, um, and then he's kind of one of these kind of corrupt Irish guys um, and then there's this upstanding James King of William, mm -hmm. which doesn't mean he's the king of anything. He's just a guy named James King, and he comes from William, Pennsylvania, or William somewhere else. Right. And he's got the San Francisco Bulletin. And to be fair to James King of William, even with his fancy name that puts upon airs, it's just a silly kind of thing. He's a good looking guy, too, so people love him in town. He does exposés on Casey rigging elections and, you know, Casey's kind of seedy business. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of smack talking back and forth between them and their editorial pages. And then, you know, 1856, you know, Casey, he just shoots. He, you know, they have a shootout in the street on Montgomery Street, which is now the financial district. Okay. And, and Casey shoots James King of William in front of Phil's Oyster Saloon. On the corner of Montgomery and Washington. I don't know why I They just I have, have a it. shootout in 1856, like Wild West. And granted, it's, 1856 is the Wild West. It totally is. And sorry, Texas, San Francisco is as far west as you can get, <laughs> except for Alaska. Right. When, you know, there's always a, I saw some documentary about Sam Peckinpah, and I think it was, it was um, Billy Bob Thornton who said, you know, Sam Peckinpah was from Fresno. You know, that's not really the West. And it's like, dude, Fresno is still the old West in uh, certain yeah. ways. Fres Fresno is terrifying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Be very careful if you end up in Fresno, people. It's uh, very, it's the big valley. How much? Yeah. I mean, that's where the big valley takes place is in Stockton and Fresno. Mm -hmm. That's the big valley. How much more Western can you get? Billy Bob Thornton. Billy. I love your movies, but, you know. <laughs> Billy Bob Thornton, you, you're listening to this. And what yeah. I need to tell you <laughs> is that you need to, to reevaluate your discussion. Barbary Coast, man. <laughs> Barbary Coast. So, yeah, he shoots him and that. There's a big vigilance up, vigilante uprising mm -hmm. over this. And it, it still falls into the kind of Catholics versus Protestants kind of line that the earlier one did. Okay. And, um... You know, this isn't without reason. There was another there was another shooting at the time where like uh, uh, um, Charles Cora, William Cora, God, Cora, the guy's name is Cora, shoots, shoots some, uh, you know, retired uh, military officer, some kind of important, prominent person. And so there's just this feeling that justice isn't going to be done because basically the vigilantes don't like the equilibrium where all the famous people get off. Right. Uh, they they want to they still want to hold some people accountable for these shootings, uh -huh. and uh, they end up hanging uh, Casey and Cora from. Uh, uh, what's crazy about the second vigilance movement is they seize, they knock over the armory, they seize field pieces. Wow. They have this uh, fort kind of close to the Embarcadero called Fort Gunny Bags, and they have these artillery pieces there. The vigilantes to, do. The, the vigilantes, vigilantes they, have essentially, they've, they've taps themselves. They've, they've decided to steal all the guns and, and, um, they, yeah. Fight the army. Who stops the vigilantes? Well, the, oh, finally? Okay. This is where it gets really crazy. Uh, the governor of California, 
Uh, William Tecumseh Sherman, the William Tecumseh Sherman wow. is, is he's like the governor a, of California in he's the 18. 18- no, oh. let me, I, I mangled it. No, okay. he, he's a banker in San Francisco. He went to West Point and he's kind of done with the military. And so he opens up a, uh, you know, he's a bank, he's a merchant. He's and this doing is in business. the 1880s. This is in 1856. This oh, we've this gone is back. Yeah. We've gone back to the first newspaper on newspaper man violence in San Francisco okay. that we know of. So in 1856, the uh, killing of is a banker. He's a banker, but he's a military man. He's a West right. Point graduate. So uh, the governor of California ta- taps William Tecumseh Sherman to to quell the vigilante uprising and to raise a militia to do this. And they have a shipment of. Guns coming down the river from Sacramento going to like Vallejo or somewhere. (laughs) And the vigilantes get word of it and they seize that. So Sherman has no weapons. Like the vigilantes steal all the weapons. Yeah. And and Sherman basically says, I'm out of here. I'm done. He he decides not to go through with this. And there's there is, I think, a quote from him. Yes, I I bookmarked all the quotes. Is it war as hell? No, um, well, no, it's, uh, that's 10 years I, later, four years, six years later. This is after the civil war written just after the civil war when he's writing his memoirs and okay. he writes, and those memoirs are available free online. You could look for William Tecumseh Sherman's memoirs okay. and read about his San Francisco days as mm-hmm. well as his civil war days and maybe killing Indians and terrible things he did after that. Right, right. Any but he of- says, quote unquote, I can handle a hundred thousand men in battle. And take the city of the sun, parentheses Atlanta. Okay. But am afraid to manage a lot in the swamp of San Francisco. Well, and unarmed. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I he mean, has a good excuse. Yeah, he is. He is. That is the excuse. The excuse is he's like, oh, well, uh, I mean, you can't just send them at armed artillery with sticks in their hands. I mean, that, I mean, I'm not saying that Sherman wouldn't have been willing to, to, I mean, cannon fodder was, is a term, uh, but that's, that's nuts. So how did, how did they beat the vigilantes? They, did they never have, did. The, they they was another thing. down. They just got tired of, of going to the meetings again. Um, they also like um, the kind of like Broderick people, you know, Broderick's still around. Uh, they all figure they could just join the vigilantes. So they, the vigilantes start like, let's say, you know, it's a, it's a club we have to join now. We'll pay our dues. Ah. We'll, we'll, we'll have some infiltration Change so the, from within. <laughs> so the vigilantes decide like, okay, like we're tired of going to the meetings and, and beating people in the street that have funny accents. So they throw another parade and everybody cheers it. And then they write the history that they were all this great thing that needed to happen. And, uh, so there you go. But yeah, the second vigilance movement, uh, that, that, uh, chased general Sherman away was started by newspaper on newspaper violence. So wow. Publisher is- on these publishers just have to get along. Right. It's so weird. Cause I mean, it was the wild West. I mean, the 1850s, they're just, everybody's just walking around armed and they're like, yeah. and, but there was no honorable, let's go meet at noon. It's, you know, I'm in a carriage. I'm going to drive by and then I'm just going to murder you. Or I mean, here you are at your office. I mean, it's kind of workplace violence in a way. It's like a precursor to that, that terrible thing, thing that we all happens, live with. We live with it now. It's the but same. It was, it was at least more personal. There was at least like you talk shit about my dad. <laughs> you know? Well, and, well, and here's I mean, the only reason that it's funny at all is because it happened 200 years ago, 160 uh, yeah. years ago. Yeah, it's not happening. You know, the thing, the the be the stuff that happens now. You're just like. What? And but the weird thing is that it did happen and it's still happening. And you're just like, oh, is this how we're always gonna deal with our with our family problems? We're gonna go we're gonna go to your workplace and gun you down. But uh, you know, we haven't seen America. <laughs> we haven't seen it yet. I mean, this these newspaper man, uh the news the publisher violence of the eighteen hundreds of the first forty years of San Francisco would be like if Jack Dorsey of Twitter stormed Facebook and sh- shot Mark Zuckerberg. Right, right. Or what they have done, which is started their own vigilante group. And uh and so they could hate the Chinese together. 
And uh, so, yeah, it's an interesting parallel. This was what I was, was what I was, what I'm seeing between what was happening then and what is happening now, because Twitter and Facebook are essentially the publishers of today, right? Yeah, that would be that, you know, that these publishers were the biggest media companies in the city at the time mm-hmm. and in the world at the time in any city. So, yeah, it would be, you know, I, I guess we're kind of glad we got rid of Elon like he's going to Texas because if anybody was going to like storm Salesforce Tower and, <laughs> and shoot Mark Benioff or, or what, you know, that's that. But that is what it would be like is yeah. if one of these one of these billionaire Forbes list people right. stormed the other guy's office and shot him. Right, right. It was it was. Yeah, it would be. If if it happened today, it would be billionaire on billionaire. Like if J.K. Rowling decided to punch, you know, um, Melinda Gates in the face, and yeah. But keep an eye on Jack Dorsey. I mean, he's got that crazy beard. I mean, he he's in San Francisco, probably not far from where these newspaper men shot at each other. <laughs> he's on Market on Jack Street. Dorsey. He's got, um, you know, he needs to start wearing. He's got the crazy beard. I want him to go full Victorian, full Dickens Fair steampunk with the top hat and the vest. You heard it here first, you guys. Uh, Bob Calhoun, the name of the book is The Murders That Made Us. And Bob Calhoun's, um, buy it local, local bookstore if you can. They will ship it to you just like Amazon will. Just call the bookstore that you have driven past for 20 years. And at Bob underscore Calhoun, C-A-L-H-O-U-N. Other episodes of The Dork Forest. I believe you've done the show twice before. And, um... Or maybe just once, and it was both wrestling and con- conventions. Yeah, well, you caught me at the pivot point where I was working on one thing and to finish <laughs> the other. But also, you had my wife Rosie on, and she talked about fan fiction. That's or right, Russell Crowe fanfic. That's right, the Russell Crowe fanfic, and uh, it was a delight. You guys have in your house, I believe, um, a, a costume that Harrison Ford wore. No, it's Russell Crowe from The Quick and the Dead. It's oh. the vest he wore in Sam Raimi's Quick I'm so and the sorry. Dead. I'm so sorry. Harrison Ford, it's okay. Russell Crowe, I get them mixed up. My Rosie's before Russell, it was Harrison. Okay. So if she, if she could afford like um, an Indiana Ford. Jones jacket, we would probably have that in the house too. <laughs> <laughs> Rangers, uh, this has been an episode of The Dork Forest with Bob Calhoun, Bob underscore Calhoun. And the book is called The Murders That Made Us. Thank you so much for doing the show, Bob. Thank you, Jackie. Great talking to you again. I hope to see you in a comedy club real soon. Me too. And you know the rules out there. Uh, Take care of each other. My hat, my hat, my hat. They're dancing around my hat. (laughs) My hat, my hat, my hat. Well, what do you think of that? If it looks like a Mexican hat dance and it sounds like a Mexican hat dance, it's most likely a Mexican hat dance. So take off your hat and let's dance. Yay. Oh, my God. Why don't we just call that as the end of the show?